me this, Joe. I can't drive and I can't fly, but at the push of a button, I can take you back to 1995. What am I? Hmm. Are you Seal's Kiss from a Rose? Yes, indeed! Oh, man. <laughs> uh, hi, everybody. Welcome welcome to the OST Party, a podcast where movie fans and music fans get together and have a, a rocking good time. Uh, my name is Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. <laughs> so tonight we are doing, we are covering uh, 1995's soundtrack to Batman Forever. Tell us a little bit about this album. Writing the success of Kiss from a Rose, Batman Forever entered the Billboard album charts at number 15 on June 24th, 1995, right there in between Blues Travelers 4 and Montel Jordan's This Is How We Do It. That same week, Pink Floyd's Pulse debuted at number one, knocking Hootie and the Blowfish's debut album Cracked Rear View down to number two. The next week, Batman Forever jumped up to number six, right behind Live's Throwing Copper. Hootie knocked Pink Floyd back down to number two to reclaim the top spot it had laid claim to that earlier that summer. The week after that, Michael Jackson's history knocked Hootie down to number three, while Batman Forever took over the number five spot. By the time summer of 1995 came to a close, Batman Forever dropped out of the top 20 in favor of Seal's self-titled album, which also featured the song Kiss from a Rose. The music-buying public had moved on. Well, in all fairness, Seal's album wouldn't have uh, some of the garbage that this album has, but it also didn't have Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, which... It's a double-edged yeah, sword. Argue is worth. Yeah, exactly. So, um, man, Hootie and those blowfish. I'm kind of surprised they're not uh, not on here. I know it was they, the '90s. That was the big thing in 1995 was Hootie and the Blowfish, and where are they? Just absent, completely absent. I'm just going to apologize now. I'm sorry, everybody, that we had to bring this back up. I know you've managed to chase it from your mind, but here we are. <laughs> The Batman everyone likes to forget because Batman and Robin is the one everyone likes to hate. <laughs> I, I, on the other hand, have kind of a soft spot in my heart for Batman Forever. I've always felt like Batman is a lot like Weird Al Yankovic in that your favorite is whichever one came out when you were nine years old. <laughs> yeah, this one hit a, kind of a, a sweet spot for us because I think by this point... We were old enough to get into PG-13 movies. We could go to the movies by ourselves. It was a big, loud summer blockbuster. There was a certain accessibility to it. Also, you could not go to a, a middle school dance without hearing Kiss from a Rose. It was everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't go to the mall. You couldn't go to a gas station. You couldn't go to a baseball game without hearing <laughs> Kiss from a Rose. It, it was like the national anthem it, for, <laughs> 1995 for a, take that hootie for a brief moment in time yes absolutely but you know what there are worse songs that could be the national anthem <laughs> some of them are on this soundtrack yes absolutely so yeah uh with batman forever uh where should we start tonight libby uh should we talk so, about the film a little bit should we talk about the album i could talk yeah. about the film all day long yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, about the film. Uh, tell me a little bit about when you first saw Batman Forever. Um, I definitely saw this in theaters. I was mm -hmm. nine year I was nine years old, and I think one of my parents took me to see it, and I got sucked right into the whole sort of pop culture vibe of it. I mean, I know that uh, yeah. this this was an, a a film and an album that they like engineered in a lab to be a pop <laughs> culture hit, and man, it worked on me. <laughs> Yeah, it is definitely 
you could sort of it, it's a boy film this is 100 a boy film yeah but yeah. i loved it and actually my sister and i saw it i think we saw it twice um and i was i was talking with her ahead of this and she was saying this is my sister hillary she was saying that we saw it in oklahoma city at quail springs mall we were the only people in the theater and she's like and that was such a cool experience because it was late in the summer so uh it was you know kind of one of the last showings it was probably eight o'clock at night which was late to see a movie when you're you know uh i guess i would have been 13 and she would have been 11 and we both loved it i like i'm not gonna front i really i enjoyed it at the time she loved it because she loved val kilmer she fell in love with Chris O'Donnell and then later developed a crush on Tommy Lee Jones in Men in Black the following year. And we Cudmore girls, we like older men. That's just how we roll. No teen idols for us. So, but she carried around, she reminded me of this, she carried around a picture of Val Kilmer cut out from Parade Magazine, like, in her wallet. So, wow. I know, she that was... Is- just in love with him that is dedication oh my oh, god oh yeah oh yeah we're hardcore we go all in. we're thirsty we like totally identify <laughs> with chase meridian yeah i i fell into the the like the pop culture trap of this thing hard like i got the soundtrack immediately i got the super nintendo game immediately and immediately regretted that decision um, the soundtrack i spun countless times kind of skipping around uh half of this soundtrack believe it or not was new to me uh for this this uh podcast yeah same here <laughs> uh, i realized i'd never actually listened to the soundtrack all the way through i knew you know some of the the big songs off it but there was stuff on here that I had just not noticed, which is kind of neat because we'll, we'll talk about that a little later. Yeah. But but, um, but a real real quick, let me just break break this down for you a little bit. Like the Clerks soundtrack wasn't much of a a, a charting you know hit, but this album you know it sold two million copies. It, was, it went double platinum, hit number five on the U.S. charts, had six radio singles, and really yes. And a a couple of those would go on to either be nominated for or win Grammy Awards. So this was a big album. And some of them went on to be nominated for Razzie Awards. Yes. (laughs) Nominated for... And some of them went on to lose Grammy Awards. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nominated for like a Golden Globe and a Razzie in the same week, I think. I know. Yeah. (laughs) But, um... No, what one of the things that kind of uh, stood out to me very quickly is that for as ubiquitous as this album was, and everyone our age knows it. I mean, if you walked into a gathering of of millennials, of late millennials, and started singing the first lines of "Kiss from a Rose," every single one of them would sort of know the words. Nobody actually knows all the words to "Kiss from a Rose," um, because they don't make any sense. It's not available on Spotify. Weird. This album is not available. It, so it's not on Spotify, but it is on YouTube. I don't know. But in bits and pieces. And yeah. it's like, yeah, like we um you were saying you had to really search for the original video for Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. Um That was more it's... a function of the fact that like so many Batman fans have done their own like fan edit of that video that you have to really them. search and find the one that's the actual true video. Ugh. Batman fans, by the way, are the are like capital T, capital W, the worst. They are. We hate you guys. 
and so. I'm and I'm one of them. And like I'm a self-loathing Batman fan. <laughs> so, and that's what I do like about this film is it bridges a gap between sort of the two campy that became Batman and Robin or like the Adam West stuff. It's a little lighter than the Tim Burton ones while still maintaining a sort of lovely light spookiness. But it's not as dreary and dull as the Christopher Nolan ones, which I would rather snort ground glass <laughs> than watch a Christopher Nolan Batman movie. Like, come the fuck at me, Batman fans. They are dull. They are unwatchable. They are for whiny virgins. And not a single one of them has a hit pop song associated exactly. with it. Exactly! Like, I don't want to watch your fog-filled, sad boy melodrama shit. So, save it for your fucking live journal. Oh, God. Cutting deep tonight, Libby. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm probably going to get murdered for that, so... Well, that's, Remember the, that's, me. that's the risk we took when we took on the job. I know, but... All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, Batman Forever, is it, it, it kind of fits right there in that slot between like you said the campy and sort of the the dark like the grim dark seriousness and it kind of it tries to marry the two doesn't really do it successfully but kind of fuses them into its own weird thing like it's this is a very like neon soaked like rock opera sort of stylized film where all the lighting is like on set and diegetic and everything looks like it's staged for an opera. They hired an, a guy yeah. who's known for doing opera scores to score the film, which the score for this film is almost better than the soundtrack. And and this is one of those, they did this a lot uh, in the 90s, where the score and the soundtrack are separate. Yes, yeah. So rather than sort of put the two together with a, a handful of sort of main pieces, um, you had to you know shell out fifteen ninety nine for two different CDs. But this one to me, is the last Batman movie that has a real look to it. It looks like nothing else. And it took Tim Burton's sort of raw iron, gothic, mildly Victorian Batman and threw it into a neo-noir Tokyo. So you've got these old cars on this, you know, hyper sort of Blade Runner-esque landscape, these big statues. And it's really a beautiful film to look at. It's still all practical effects and it's, it's quite a lovely landscape. I mean, it's a nightmarish hell, but Joel Schumacher really dedicated himself to creating a Gotham city that was really kind of funky to look at. The gangs all wore cool makeup. Like you got to respect that with gangs, like that they get up and before they go do gang shit, hang around on the streets being hoodlums and you know, roughing up girls in denim jackets, like they they put on the makeup, you know. They put on Respect. the yeah, like the 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 UV like glow in the dark skeleton makeup. People and, these days don't they don't show respect for their tribe, <laughs> you know? They're, they're just lazy. I'm lazy a, millennials don't want to put on makeup before being in gangs. I'm a man who respects a good glow in the dark skeleton, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, this, this whole movie looks like a rave that takes place in a gothic, gothic expressionist's asshole. <laughs> but that being said, the soundtrack does not often reflect that. No, and I have I have some very uh, particular questions about this album. What do you want to start off with? So my first question: I'm on AllMusic.com. 
the album moves listed for this album are intense, intimate, stylish, manic, fiery, and street smart. Um, and a lot of this album features sort of downbeat, down tempo, sort of. Um, cl- I, I don't want to describe it as club music because that's a it's, wide elect- genre. it's early electronica kind of right, post industrial. Yeah. With all, yeah, okay. So with all the the post industrial electronica and sort of down tempo tunes, uh, Libby, is this a shoegaze album? No, no, <laughs> that, it is that not. That was a bad question. I know. I'm just uh, all right. That, <laughs> I'm honestly like when people say shoegaze, I'm like, I don't even know what that is. I refuse I, to acknowledge that that's a term. Someone was like, the cure or shoegaze. I'm like, the motherfucking goth do not come at me with that shit. I don't know what it is either, but I assume it's this. So that's something. Honestly, that's something that people in Cosby sweaters who can quote high fidelity. That's a term they use. All right, fine. So <laughs> they those nerds suck, anyways. I hate them. I hate them like Batman. <laughs> I'm making a lot of friends tonight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So uh, real quick, let me just run down the six radio singles from this album because there were a lot of them. Oh yes. Uh, in order from of release, uh, the first we had uh, U2's Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. The second one was Seal's Kiss from a Rose. The okay. third single, uh, Method Man's The Riddler. All three okay. of those got their own music videos, by the way. Yes. And the following three, Brandy's Where Are You Now, The Offspring's cover of uh, The Damned Smash It Up, and then finally Nobody Lives Without Love by Eddie Reader. Huh. I, I, forgot, I listened to that this afternoon and completely forgot that was on the soundtrack. It's been three hours. <laughs> yeah, not the most memorable, some of these songs. Um, where should we start? Well, I think we should start with uh, the one that everyone sort of identifies with uh, Batman Forever, and that is Kiss from a Rose. So, hey, And yes. here now we'll play a clip, and then I want to say... Uh, Couple skate, everybody. Couple <laughs> skate. <laughs> used to sing she had lyrics for this song because i'm convinced like i said nobody knows the words and she used to sing them as but did you know that when it snows the car freezes over and the rust falls down on the turtles (laughs) (laughs) so that is how i always hear it um also uh the line babe you got a dictionary that i want to (laughs) buy Yes, certain lines in this song he sings so fast that you have no time to register what it is he's saying. And, and he doesn't re- exactly use a lot of consonants. No. And so. then but then when you look it up it doesn't help because none of the lyrics make any sense. Yeah, they're not like actual sentences. They're just sort of like words. What does a what is a kiss from a rose on the gray? What even is that? I don't know. Is that like a sex thing? I don't know. But what is the what is the gray? Like that's that's the next question. Are you it, sure it's the gray and not like the grave? I'm looking at Google uh lyrics here. It says the gray, G-R-E-Y. And I'm imagining it's not it's not the hit Liam Neeson film The Gray, so that would be, they should use this song again. Just, I feel like it's really time to bring this back. Actually, going through text messages um with Hillary. 
uh, I found that she texted me probably about a month back that she heard this song on the radio. <laughs> it's still playing. Oh yeah, this it's a bona fide hit, and it's not going to go away. I and know, but it's frankly, I, I I don't mind. Like I I this is like one of those songs that I kind of associate with the '90s, and I'm glad that it stuck around. I guess, but it's just one of those, like, I haven't heard it in probably 20 years. So it's just like, wait, what? I completely, have for- I kind of had forgotten it existed until and, fairly recently. Yeah. But then I, maybe I'm talking out of turn because I've listened to it maybe 30 times in the last week to prepare for this show. Maybe. Um, um, but tell me a little bit about, because everyone, I mean, this song brings back a lot of, like, seventh grade memories for mm-hmm, me. It was mm-hmm. played at every dance um, I'm pretty sure that this cassette single was issued to every girl between the ages of 13 and 17 through the U.S. mail. I think it was part of a census. I, b- I believe that. Yeah. Right. How many how many teen girls are there in America? Um, President Clinton wants to know. <laughs> oh, That's a rough joke. <laughs> I I almost feel bad about it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, Kiss from a Rose, it's one of those songs like it's in a Batman movie. So, you know, guys kind of see it as legit. You know, they wouldn't put it in a Batman movie if it wasn't awesome. And, you know, I, I've said that as a joke, but I actually kind of believe it. Like, this is a great song. Yeah. It, but even, the- even if Seal kind of is writing this out, the lyrics like he thinks he's trying to write a Shakespeare sonnet and doesn't quite know how to do it. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that it's actually not in a Batman movie. It's the second song played over the credits. And even then, only half of it. Like, it's played yes. over the end of the credits that n- presumably nobody saw, because no- nobody sits through movies anymore. Yeah, a lot of, I guess, you know, uh, ushers at theaters saw it and really right. liked this song. But it's, and I think in in sitting down to watch this movie and thinking of the music video... I expected it. Like in my head, I had when he when uh, Batman shows up at Thirst Meridian's uh, balcony, where she's sleeping without a pillow. She kisses him, and she's like, "My place, midnight," and is like laying under silk sheets. Like, you know what, girl? If you invite some dude over to your house, don't go to bed. Wait up for him. And he shows up on her balcony, and she's sleeping without a pillow. And then she's like, "I'm in love with someone else," and he smiles. That's what I thought. Kiss from a Rose played. Well, you're you're not. So far, I was always surprised not, when it didn't. You're, well, you're not far off because, like, I, I read I read up on this originally. They wanted the song in the movie to play over a sex scene between Bruce and Chase. Oh, I'm gonna be sick. <laughs> yeah, that did that did not pan out, and so they it. just stuck it on the end credits instead. Like, this was going to be the lo- the legit love theme for the movie. But like, they could have used it in that scene, like the so they didn't get to the boning part. But it's right. like it it would have been a good background song for that so it's just in my head i had interspersed those two things and they they weren't there memory is a funny thing it, it is so you you kind of insert the so. song it, it, you kind of insert the song into that scene yourself and then kind of yeah, knowing know, it, knowing that it, it makes their their interactions a little a little more romantic i think and i think that's yeah that's what they were going for is they want this to be the big romantic sort of uh, subplot of the film is is chase and batman but then in the, you watch the film and it's it's not quite romantic it's really kind of spooky on chase's part because she's a complete wacko wacko is that a technical term yeah we could go into honestly we could do a whole podcast on what a fucking loon <laughs> she is so um 
So tell me, Joe, did you ever hold hands with a girl to this song? Um, not in the day. <laughs> Since then, yes. All right. So this, I, well, I'll say this: the song has legs. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, I don't think I ever did. I don't think a boy ever asked me to dance during this song. Aww. I don't think I ever got couple skate to this song. I did get couple skate to "I Can Love You Like That," which was on the charts around the same time. Mm-hmm. But uh, no kiss from a rose for Libby. Alas, so what a shame! What a shame! I know, I know. But um, so like, this song, this is how popular this song was. It won three Grammys. It won Record of the Year, uh, beating out Waterfalls by TLC. Wow! It won Male Vocalist of the Year, uh, and it won Song of the Year, beating out You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. It beat out Male Vocalist of the Year for um, Have You Ever Really Loved a Woman by Brian Adams and When We Dance by Sting. And I love both those songs. And I am not afraid to tell the world that I really, really, really love Have You Ever Really Loved a Woman by Brian Adams. I love that song. I think it's great. What was that? That was in a soundtrack too, wasn't it? Don Juan DeMarco. That's right, yeah. Okay. And it went up for... um, it was that and Sting's Moonlight that went up for an Oscar and also a Golden Globe against Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. They lost both to Colors of the Wind by mm. Vanessa Williams, which is a garbage <sighs> song that nobody likes. Yeah, and Pocahontas has not aged particularly well for a number of reasons. Uh, all of them? Well, that's still a number. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever but, number uh, that is, it's still a number. It, Oh, yeah. But this song also beat out Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me for the MTV Movie Award for Best Song in the Movie. And when you put the videos back to back, you can see why, because the the YouTube video is a fucking nightmare. Oh my god, yes. Do we want to get into Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me? Or do, we, do you want to talk a few more minutes about Kiss from a Rose? No, let's do it. You know what? I mean, Kiss from a Rose is the one song on this album everybody knows, and I'm pretty sure everybody loves. So I don't think uh, any more time spent on it will be uh, needed. Okay, yeah, well. Not necessary. <laughs> well, I'm going to go to bat for Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. This is my favorite U2 song. You know what? I kind of agree. I'm not the yes. biggest U2 fan in the world, to be perfectly well, honest. I have a theory about U2. They're the favorite band of people who are just really not into music. Because I've never met someone who's like passionate about music. Who's like, oh, I love Tom Waits and Elvis Costello and the Smiths. And also, but my favorite band is U2. <laughs> like, never in my life. U2 is for people who don't like music. Because yeah. it sort of sounds like music, and it's like a little edgy, but it's also romantic at times, and it's like sort of deep, but not that good. Yeah, I, I think U2 is one of those bands that sort of accidentally wrote three or four great songs, and everything else is just kind of... Filler? Filler, yeah. And this is wow. kind of, this is one of those accidents, too. Yeah, and it's this song um, was part of... They wrote it during Zero, their Zeropa tour. Yeah. And it's it's a, sort of about being on tour, but there's a sense that there's in in the film 
there's a sense that it's about like a woman, a starlet. So in listening to it, I was like, is this about Chase Meridian? And then I was like, no, it's too dangerous for her because all she does is like lie in bed with her lips parted. So um, it's a song of encouragement for Robin. Yeah, it's Robin, your parents are dead, but come on, you're a star. You know what? You're a star. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I, I don't think so. But um, but I do love this song. I think it's it's got a real like grimy feel to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, my other favorite YouTube YouTube song is from another uh, soundtrack. And it's uh, Elevation, the uh, Tomb Raider. Yes. Are you, Libby, are you me? Like, this is I crazy. Think so. Oh, no, because I don't know all the words that kiss from a rose, like some people. Hey, we can't all be perfect. <laughs> but um, this, like, uh, like kiss from a rose, does not appear in the film. It's the, I think this is the official theme from Batman Forever. Uh, you could make, I mean, you know what? Here's what it is. Uh, they wanted Kiss from a Rose to be the theme, and that didn't happen. And then Hold Me, Thrill Me kind of sl- snuck in there and said, you know what? We're the new theme. Deal with yeah. it. Yeah. And because it's the first one played over the credits. Um, fun trivia for this. Macfisto, which is Bono's devil character from the Zeropa tour, was supposed to appear in the film during the party scene. Yes. When they couldn't make uh when they couldn't make that deal because probably Bono's ego was too big to fit in set on the set. <laughs> um they offered this song and the truly insane music video. I wish we can't even really you can't put words on a podcast. You really we'll have to put it in the show notes because you kind of have to see this video. It's it's mind melting. Not only is it brain yeah, like a brain melter, it's an animated brain melter. Yeah, like, this is this is what the Riddler did to us with his stupid device. Bono's singing the song and turning into his like alter ego McFisto, and also his fly character is in there too for some reason. And there's a scene where Elvis Presley runs him down in a car and he's reading the screw tape letters. And I don't understand what this video is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nobody understands U2 because U2 is like, they're ridiculous and you're not supposed to understand them. And people misinterpret that as deep. But you know what the funny thing about this song is? What's that? It lost the Grammy for best rock performance to blues travelers run around. Oh, <laughs> That is just the so, biggest kick in the dick. <laughs> Which is, and again, like, I love this song, but I think it, because I love it so much, I can make fun of it. I right. really, genuinely love this song, but I really don't like U2, even though there's, like, a bunch of U2 songs that I really like. Mm-hmm. He's just, you kind of hate them, because Bono's really easy to dislike. Bono, he's, he's easy to make so. fun of, yeah. Like, they're a good yeah, band with kind of a, a super obnoxious singer. Um, yeah, this is the song that was nominated for best original song at the Golden Globes and also the worst original song at the Razzies, and it lost yes. the Razzie to a song from Showgirls. Oof, I don't know if that's like better or worse. Yeah, no. just to say that you're not as you're not as I don't know you're not as bad as Showgirls, but you're not as good as Kids from a Rose. Yeah, or you're not as good as Brian Adams. Have you ever really loved a woman? <laughs> Which is also nominated alongside it. Yep, yep. So somewhere in there is like is a happy medium, I guess. The happy medium is "Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me." Yeah, Um, it's a great song. I've I've heard it described as like a a 
a weird glam rock version of Des- of their other song Desire, which is also my other favorite U2 song, so that works out. Um, it's it's like yeah. a dirty version. It's like the dirty gutter flip side to it. Yeah. It's it's like the dorkiest glam rock song ever. Yeah, because Bono's a huge dork. But <laughs> yeah. um No, my favorite U2 songs actually would be the Mysterious Ways and the Unforgettable Fire. Yeah. I I like their weird like the Unforgettable Fire is so like fake deep. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. But um I want to talk about the line and you're turning tricks with your crucifix, which is just like the most edgy, like 1995 thing to say. Like, it's so like, ooh, that passes for edgy in 1995. Right. Yeah. And then the, the other Hootie line. Hootie and the Blowfish uh, would never say that. No, no, no. Hootie would stay <laughs> far away from that. Uh, the, the other line that always vexed me as a child was, uh, you're looking like your sister and dressing like a tart. And I didn't I didn't understand British slang when I was nine, so I was trying to figure out what Pop-Tarts had to do with anything. <laughs> She's a sexy Pop-Tart. She bought her costume from Yandy. <laughs> <laughs> but, which is weird, because then it's like, is her sister a tart? Yeah. If you look like, like your sister and you're dressing like a tart, like so is is your sister a tart or does she look like a tart? Like what's what are you talking about, Bono? <laughs> yeah, I do like the line, like you got uh caught in the headlights of a stretch car, uh, you're a star. Like I think that's a really there's something really sexy about that. There's a real film noir image if you think of someone like, you know, Lauren Bacall, like this beautiful blonde, like stepping out in front of in these headlights. Like slowing down and shining between like her big long legs, and I I think that's kind of what the crux of what the songs are like really about is like the song in the video is like being blindsided by fame and not knowing what to do about it. Yeah, that's kind of what the song is about, right. I, I guess. But you, yeah. and I love I do love that line like you don't know what you're doing, babe. It must be art because that's such like I think about that's such a Bono <laughs> thing to say. I know, but it's also like you think of like these like hipster bitches like oh, it's a tampon in a teacup it's art like fuck you yeah like, yeah ugh. um so i love this sort of you know like fuck you to sort of high society art that sort of fake bohemia bohemia mm-hmm. we'll call it that's a word i just invented there you go um so i i do i love this song i think it's just so gritty and glamorous and i'm a sucker for weird mid-90s you too so I'm the worst, but um, yeah, I think that's any other thoughts that's, on the. Uh, no, that's yeah. That was like my introduction to U2 as a kid, and it's kind of served me well because everything else I've heard from U2 is either kind of mediocre or uh, just plain just plain obnoxious. Yeah, but um, it's weird because I I had forgotten about that song until after college, when I suddenly it like popped into my head. And because I don't remember associating it with Batman Forever, but I remember, I don't remember where I must have heard, obviously I must have heard it right. uh, in 1995, but I had completely forgotten it until about 2007. Mm-hmm. And I still, I, I put it on a mix CD and still listen to it because it's just like, this song is amazing. So I think I was going through kind of a big U2 phase um, as one does when they've just graduated college. So, um, but I do, I, I love this song and I'm not ashamed of it. You know what? I, I don't have any, yeah, I don't have anything else to say about Hold Me, Thrill Me. It's a great song. 
Yeah, and it's another one that I think should have been used in the movie. It's got the right sound for the movie, um, and I don't know why it wasn't. I, I, th- I, I feel like that's where the soundtrack really falls apart, is that almost none of it is used in the film. Right, and I feel like if the song were in the film, it would have been in that party scene with whatever band they had playing, you know, playing that song, and then you Bono gets to make his cameo, and then we're off to the races, you know? That's yeah. kind of where it should fit in. But yeah, uh, there's... Or over a fight scene. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, okay, the the actual last thing I'll say about Hold Me, Thrill Me is, and I I think I mentioned this earlier, if you go looking for the video on YouTube, you're going to find a number of fan edits of the song with clips from the video, but also, like, clips from the movie, you know, the the action shots and trailer shots and things that make it look cool and awesome and badass that weren't actually in the the video, because Batman fans are crazy, and they like to... uh, what what's the what do they call it not shipping um they like to ship batman and chase i guess no no actually a lot of the they sort of they use a lot of the footage of um two-face like with the the wrecking ball i think they use that in two different shots right because it's it's an animated part of the video and then it cuts to two-face and the wrecking ball and that's I mean I don't know Two Face is probably a pretty good uh, point of comparison for the vi- the song and the video because it's all about like the dual sides of Bono and the dual sides of like fame and shame and things like that. Yeah, and I think um yeah that was yeah in I never thought of it that way that it, it's kind of his theme which I think makes for a good segue into uh, Method Man's The Riddler mm-hmm. because like they get the, they each get their own theme and if if Kiss from a Rose is the uh, Batman or the Bruce Wayne and Chase Meridian theme. Then we've got Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me as the Two Face theme, and then Method Man's The Riddler as the Riddler's theme. Brain cemented, mixing the blender, illusion, mass confusion, question mark, clusion, what, where, why, who's in? Quiz, time to ask yourself who it is. Shiesty be yellow, underhanded bits, invaded brother's way. Nothing as cryptic or obnoxious as Hold Me, Thrill Me. It's just straight up a rap about the Riddler. Yeah, that's it. Um, and I gotta say, uh, not a particularly good one. Not really, no. It's I, I'm not like the biggest like Method Man or Wu Tang fan, but like I've heard enough of this music to know that this is kind of yeah, not that great. It's it's really phoned in. It's his flow is pretty stagnant. To be yeah. honest, it's um, it's kind of it's kind of like his from a rose where I, I've I've read the lyric half the lyrics and they don't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, and I kind of feel like yeah, they just he just sort of did a rap about the Riddler and went about his business. Um, yeah, although the music video is kind of cool. It's pretty neat, um, yeah. Where like, he's, you know, it's got this sort of mob mentality. Um, it would almost be better if they didn't insert clips of the Riddler. Yeah, because it's not <laughs> the, the actual like video itself has nothing to do with the Riddler. It's a, yeah. it's it's more of like a like a your typical Scarface kind of fantasy than yeah. it is about the Riddler. Like it's weird too because like so many rappers in the like late mid to late nineties like idolized uh, Scarface and apparently Method Man idolized the Riddler. <laughs> And it's, I don't, we can, we can compare, I mean, there's, there's a lot of great, um, hip hop soundtracks, mm-hmm. uh, that, I mean, we, we're not even going to get a chance to touch on probably this season, but, um, I can't help but sort of draw comparisons to the Dick Tracy soundtrack, um, with Ice-T doing the Dick Tracy theme and Ice-T is so good. He's so sharp. I guess he just like came in. It was so professional and just like really nailed it in just a handful of takes. Um, 
And this one just sounds so phoned in. Yeah. I, I don't really know. There's not a lot to say about it, really, because it's just kind of your your sort of generic soundtrack sort of. It's almost like a novelty song, you know? Yeah. I don't think. A novelty. Meant, oh. Sorry. Go on. I don't think they meant for this to be like a radio single because it, it's it's too like a little bit weird and a little jokey and a little just obnoxious and it doesn't really hang together as a song and it's more yeah. just method man just kind of musing about the riddler in gotham city and things like that and just which is if we can sort of compare that to the movie on so two-face two-face i don't feel like gets enough a screen time in a sense and because it was 1995 and Jim Carrey was everywhere. It was a dark time. We'd just come off Kurt Cobain's suicide. And we're just like, please, we need a guy that will talk out of his butt to teach America to laugh and to love again. This is your captain speaking. Please return to your seats. We will be experiencing turbulence. You had to have Jim Carrey in a movie. And he is the worst part about Batman Forever. He's... He really Everything is. else about that movie is is passable, but every second that he is on screen, you want to kill him, and he because he's just obnoxious and he never he never interacts with the other actors. He just he steals. In his though. mind, I'm sure he steal he's stealing this the show, but you have to. I mean, so much of acting is that interplay, and he is talking at no one he's just sort of waiting for tommy lee jones to finish speaking so that he can yell and say spank me spank me <laughs> or just like prance around and what's what's the the line that tommy lee jones said to him okay so basically <laughs> there's, there's a story that goes along with it. i know what you're talking about there's a story that goes along with this so uh when jim carrey was brought on to do the film I, I, apparently Tommy Lee Jones was like an idol of his. He loved his acting, his you know previous roles, and he wanted to take Tommy Lee Jones out to dinner. So he takes Jones out to dinner, and Jones is visibly like not happy and kind of distraught and a little bit anxious. And Jim Carrey's like, well, you know, what's the problem? Come to find out, Tommy Lee Jones hates Jim Carrey and everything he stands <laughs> for. Enough so that he's he's he literally says the line, "I cannot sanction your buffoonery." <laughs> Which I feel like that should have been the tagline to this film. Like, Batman Forever, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. It's the one moment that I have sympathy for Jim Carrey, because how bad must it feel to have like, oh, your do. idol so say that to your face? I know, that just, that makes me really, really sad, but it's also so funny that I'm gonna let it slide. Then you watch the film and you're like, oh yeah, I can totally see it. Like, you, like when yeah. every every time I, the two of them are on screen together and Two-Face is like vaguely threatening the Riddler, I don't think it's an act. I think Tommy Lee Jones really is pointing that gun in his face and kind of wishes there were bullets in it. Yeah, and but it, I think it's a real testimony to Tommy Lee Jones because he didn't want to do the film. He didn't because his son was like, this would be cool. And he's like, yeah, sure, his kid's got to go to college someday, right? And so, but he seems to be having the most fun. And every scene, there's a weird delight to it. And yeah. he adds a, a, a magnificent patter 
to everything that he says. And it's really, it's, it's fascinating to watch because it's hammy, but also a little understated. Like the, the way he'll like speed up and draw back on his lines. Who do we have before us? Gotham's finest, well-to-do, influential. Surely one of you knows who Batman is. Hell, odds are one of you pasty-faced twits is Batman. He really lets those lines sing, you know? They're, yeah. It's so good. Too true, and so you shall. Nothing like live bait yes. to trap a bat. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, the one that always stuck out for me, and I don't know why, I guess I just thought it was funny, like, well, it looks like another day for wine and roses, or in your case, beer and pizza. <laughs> like, and he's just so, I mean, that's in the first five minutes of the film, and you're already like, okay, this guy is really, he's just going to go with it. And there's never a moment where you feel like he's not all in with the rest of the cast where Jim Carrey is really alienated from all of them. And as a result, he's, you see him a lot alone. He's alone in his lab. Um, he's, you know, he's prancing through the Batcave, destroying things. And, and then at the, at the end of the film, he's perched up on his little, like, roost in his, in his lair by himself uh, yeah. on that throne where he's, like, yeah. feeding information into his brain. Yeah. And and it's it, you kind of can't help but wonder like is this just just no one could stand to be near Jim Carrey, or like why did they they write that film in such a way? And then when you realize that that role was writ written for Robin Williams, how different would that film have been? I mean, he would have still been like the same like fast talking manic character, but he might not have been as obnoxious. And I also yeah. I also feel like I feel like Robin Williams would have said no to the green spandex and the orange hair. Like that's yeah. just that as a design choice, that's just way too much. Like even for where the films would go with Batman for like that Riddler just would not even fit in with Batman and Robin. No. And there's a scene where you could see the little Riddler. Like visibly, you could see like everything. Oh, oh. Yeah. I was just like, well, I'm traumatized now. Like, I don't know how I missed that. Like on the big screen. But like I'm, I'm sitting here watching it in my living room, like, oh god, that's his penis. Oh god, she's like, oh. riddle me this, ladies. <laughs> oh god, but it's weird. I got like offended at weird points in this film, like when he's like, "Do you like the jacket? It keeps me safe while I'm jogging at night." Like you know, women aren't safe at jogging at night. They get raped, Riddler. No matter how many fancy jackets they have. Like, which is not what the joke is about it, so he doesn't get hit by cars, but it's like, it was this weird, I was so offended. <laughs> okay, but, but, but yeah, like, so to get back to your point, like, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones had just come off of winning an Oscar for The Fugitive, and he jumped straight into Batman Forever with apparently the person he hates most in this entire world. <laughs> he cannot sanction his buffoonery. So, but I think it's only fair that he gets the really good song, and that Jim Carrey, or rather that the Riddler got this, like, half-assed sort of nerd song that nobody cares about that right. like it's it's, it's yeah. weird that like the loudest character gets kind of the most like understated song in the it's movie. one of the later songs on the on the soundtrack too yeah yeah it's right near the end so and as, as a radio single this this also like charted on the on the billboard hot 100 for some reason it hit it, you know it only hit 56 but it still charted which is <laughs> baffling to me was there not a hootie and the blowfish song that week no they were all in the top 10 already <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> we ran out of Hootie and Dave Matthews songs to put on 
this this country had a shortage of hoodie, okay? <laughs> we, shortage of we were running at a hoodie deficit and we had to bring in Method Man to, to shore things up. I'm trying to think now, I don't know if a hoodie of a blowfish song has ever appeared in a film. I've shown plenty of TV shows, but I can't think of a film with a hoodie of a blowfish song in it. You know, I can't either, and I, I, I'm pretty sure there was like a Friends soundtrack that had a Hootie song on it, but that's about it. My god, we were running out of Hootie deficit. <laughs> I'm sure someone is going to write in and correct us, like, actually, there was a Hootie song on the Batman and Robin soundtrack, and be like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, stay tuned for that, we'll find out soon enough. Oh god, oh, we're going to watch Batman and Robin. <laughs> so, I went down that wormhole today. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. This, this this film has broken me. My husband and I were up till midnight last night, just like laying in bed talking about how this movie makes no sense at all. Like, none. Like, can we talk about Robin for just a minute? Yes, let's talk about Robin. Why is Robin in this film? That doesn't even bother me so much as the fact that Robin's supposed to be a teenager, and he's clearly, like... He's the oldest teenager I've ever seen. And I get it. Adults play teenagers all the time. But he was... Chris O'Donnell was 25 when this film was made. And he is the oldest looking 25-year-old I've ever seen. Like, you can put all the fucking earrings on him you want. He's not going to look any younger. I need a name. Bat Boy, Nightwing. I don't know. What do you think? What's a good sidekick name? How about Dick Grayson, college student? And he's like, he has to be at minimum 16, which is uh, the legal age you can ride a motorcycle. Right. But he's like this, you know, he's rejecting, he doesn't need the state to take care of him or make him a ward of anybody. So he's younger than 18, but it's like, why aren't you at school? Yeah, like who's gonna, yeah, if if you're not at school, who's homeschooling you? Is it gonna be Alfred? Alfred's got enough shit to do. An empty house all by himself while while Bruce Wayne either sleeps or goes beats people up. I don't know. He's got he's got plenty of downtime. No, he, he could teach a kid. Math. I know. It seems like he's the only staff in the house. You don't see like someone folding. You see Alfred folding laundry at one point, and it assumes Alfred cooks. There's no maids or housekeepers or personal chefs. Alfred does everything. That's kind of how it's always been, though. And I guess except for the the '60s show, they had that other. Like the live-in maid, so that we had a female presence on the show. I guess, but, but he, uh, yeah. he does not have time to teach some, you know, twenty-five-year-old like what the cotton teach chain him the does. ropes about the world. Yeah. So, but but even like even within the the confines of like the production of the film, like okay, so they wanted a kind of a teenage Robin, which is he's supposed to be in the film, but they also want an actor who's willing and able to do his own stunts. So let's hire an adult who doesn't look sixteen. And we'll just assume everybody figures it out for themselves. Like it doesn't just it doesn't track. None of it makes any sense on screen. Like Chris O'Donnell can't play sixteen, and he looks forty five. Yeah. And he, I mean, he didn't do his own stunts. He, I mean, he didn't. But yeah. I mean, I'm sure they they kind of wanted someone who could. Yeah, or someone know. who didn't look so young. But you still needed. I mean, like you think about the cast of Empire Records. Right. They all look like teenagers. They were all in their early 20s. They're probably about the same age as Chris O'Donnell. But, like, Rory Cochran looks like he's 18. Maybe 19. Um, yeah. You know, Ethan Everett. They all look young. Like, young and fresh-faced. When, when Chris O'Donnell was born, he was already 35 and had been on NCIS for, like, three seasons. <laughs> he 
looks older than Batman, okay? <laughs> and the thing is, like, I I get it. Because, like, I mean, he'd be a good Robin. He just can't be a teenage Robin. He could be a right. middle-aged Robin. But you, he's been, I'm not selling him as a teenager. And that's fine. I don't have to. Except they keep insisting, like, he's a ward of the state. Like, the dude has a full-time job. He's graduated college. The age of emancipation in Gotham City is 27, so... <laughs> we, we've got some problems in the DC-verse. <laughs> some yeah, legal logistical things that need to be hammered out before um, we can just let 27-year-olds run the streets like animals. I guess. Because all the, like, gangs he fights are all like, like, guys, shouldn't you be at jobs? You're, like, 37 years old! <laughs> you should be working at the sit-go right now. What are you doing? Take that clown paint off. You're due on Wall Street. <laughs> That's a pretty good segue, though, into um, uh, the next two songs we should talk about, uh, which appear back to back in this very scene where Robin steals the Batmobile and takes it joyriding through the, I guess, the red light district in Gotham. I mean, there's hookers, there's gang members, there's, you know, it's all kinds of stuff going on. Right. And then back to back, we get uh, the Brandy song, uh, Where Are You Now? And then, and then immediately followed by the Offsprings cover of Smash It Up. All right, well, let's talk about Brandy first. Okay. Um, Tell me about Brandy. There's there's two main female singers on this soundtrack. We've got PJ Harvey and Brandy. Right. And uh, PJ Harvey's One Time Too Many does not appear in the film. It's on the sort of inspired by piece of the soundtrack. And it doesn't work. There's something about it. It's too hard-edged. It doesn't fit. But Brandy's sort of her song really fits the whole film It's got this real, like, let's fuck bass line. <laughs> and her vocals, they're like cigarette smoke blown through silk. They're so gorgeous. They're so sultry. They're so sexy. And written I, and produced by Lenny Kravitz, believe yes. it or not. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. That's this that's giant why. scarf in his penis that just falls out. <laughs> <laughs> written written and produced by Lenny Kravitz's penis. <laughs> Written by Lenny Kravitz's penis, produced by Lenny Kravitz's giant scarf. <laughs> Couple jokes. In the current, like, parlance of the internet, this song slaps. Oh my god, yeah. And it doesn't, but it doesn't fit this scene. It's still weird, like, why, why this scene? Somebody, uh, somebody saw the, the dailies and was like, all right, he's driving by hookers. We got to put some porn music in here. Yeah, exactly. But this is like high class porn music. This is really good. Because um, I really feel like this fits Chase Meridian. Because there's a, a line like, are you a mental case? And she's a psychiatrist who wants to make a guy her patient and then fuck him, which is deranged. So it's, it, it seems like a really weird use of a song that fits really well elsewhere right but yeah. it's, this is one of those songs i think alongside um 
Nick Cave uh, doing There is a Light, like, There is a Light would have worked better in this scene. Because, oh, yeah, it would. And because it captures the vibe better than anything else on the soundtrack. It's dark and it's grimy and it, I kind of, I'm kind of afraid of it. And yeah. <laughs> but it's got this great retro vernacular. There's lines like Mr. High Roller and the use of Daddio. So that you, I mean, because you've got these old cars, but this the modern, again, like Tokyo-esque setting, it's like finding a rose in a gutter alongside like a couple lucky strikes, like just crushed in bum piss. I think you just described the aesthetic of Kiss from a Rose better than the Kiss from a Rose did. <laughs> Seal is he's within me now. But um, I feel like this and There's a Light are kind of the standouts for adults. And when you think about the soundtrack being aimed at, like, 13-year-old boys, are 13-year-old mm-hmm. boys, like, really going to be into Brandy and Nick Cave? I don't know. And that's risky. I can tell you from Cave. experience, I wasn't. Yes! But, like, now you listen to them, and you're like, as an adult, you're like, these are amazing. These are great. I get it now. Yeah. And so it's, it's neat when you find an album that you can sort of grow into. And who would have thought mm-hmm. it would have been the Batman Forever soundtrack? Not me. No, not I've, been, me I've been spinning this thing for 20 years, and uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is an instant amazing album simply by virtue of having Nick Cave on soundtrack. Right, yeah. But yeah, the Brandy song uh, then leads into the Offspring song, which also leads us into a new segment on this show that we're calling Under the Covers. Libby, <laughs> tell us all about that. All right. Uh, as we talked about a little bit last week on Clerks, uh, one of the hallmarks, especially of mid-90s soundtracks, is that they often feature cover songs of either classic rock songs or uh, underground punk covers. In this case, we've got The Damned. And as we're saying, this plays well. Dick Grayson is driving around the Batmobile, picking fights and looking for chicks in denim jackets. Chicks dig the car. Yeah, well... Not so much Dick Grayson. No, they're just like, oh, who's this little punk? And I I do love that in the movie where they're like, who are you? He's like, I'm Batman. They're like, fuck you. That ain't Batman, that's Batboy. Fuck you, you you 12-year-old middle-aged man. Or whatever you are. Fuck you, 13 going on 30. (laughs) 13 going on 35. Man, he is old. He's not that old, but he looks old. He does. It's creepy. But he's, uh, he, he's one of those he's one of those guys who has like kind of grown into his age, but he's always been that age. I know. And now, now you're like, wow, he looks really good for holy shit. He's 48. Wow. <laughs> he's, he's always been 48. I know, but he looks good for 48. But uh, you and I actually have kind of some wildly different opinions on this cover. Uh, look, okay, so for, before I say anything, I think The Offspring is fine. I like some of their songs, and it's whatever. This song, however, I am not a fan of. How come? Because it sounds like it was recorded in one take with really bad distortion effects. Like, they didn't want to go full blast with it. They kind of half-measured the thing. 
and if I'm if I'm being perfectly honest, it sounds like it was recorded in one take while a producer dangled a fifty dollar bill in <laughs> Dexter Holland's face. You're not wrong. <laughs> um, I I don't feel that strongly about it. I think it's okay. Um, I do love The Offspring when it comes to that sort of '90s punk. Some people are Team Green Day. I'm Team Offspring. Um, you just called me out, by the way. Yeah, I did. This um, is a fight now. We're okay. fighting. <laughs> really? Really? No. no. Okay, God. I was gonna say, like, ugh. Those wars are long over. Um, but with this, I feel like they don't add anything new to the song. Mm-hmm. And they don't add, like, that offspring quality. If they had sped it up just a little bit more, maybe. Um, because that's what they're they're really known for, that that really crunchy, sped-up guitar sound. You know, it's like like playing a Surf 45 at 78 RPMs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this just, it sounds like they're a cold medicine. It's just, it's a little slow for them. It's a little lazy. Yeah, I think that's why I don't like it because I know what good offspring sounds like, and yeah. this is just not there. It, it, they don't get there with it. Yeah, um, this is actually this album features three cover songs. Um, it also has the Hunger Gets Captured by the Game, which is a cover of the Marvelettes, done by Massive Attack. Fun fact, Joe: it was mm-hmm. required by law in the mid '90s that every tenth movie have a Massive Attack song on the soundtrack. Uh, soundtracks such as Go, The Jackal, The Matrix, Pi, Hackers, and oddly enough, Sabrina. Oh my god. Yeah, I don't know what Massive Attack song was on Sabrina, but it was on there. That is bizarre. Yeah. They're on, like, and I... in, in the in the 2000s, the law was amended so that they had to be on every TV show. They did the soundtrack, or the opening <laughs> theme to House, and then we're on literally every TV show you have ever heard of. The Massive Attack theme is simply there because the law requires it. Yes. It's not great. It's not terrible. Um, it is completely unnoteworthy. However, I do want to take this special segment to call out Michael Hutchinson's uh, Iggy Pop cover, or his cover of Iggy Pop's The Passenger. This song this is, baffled the fuck out of me. <laughs> this is garbage, and I hate it. It's lazy. It's smug. I want to punch it in the dick. I hate this. I'm so angry. <laughs> like the rest, I don't care. I don't care about the Riddler. I don't care about the PJ Harvey number. Just don't care. Don't care about Massive Attack. This song, I hate it. I really just genuinely, I forgot it was on here. And then I was like, oh, that's cool. The Passenger. And I listened to it. I'm like, why did this happen? There's no reason for it. It's not in the movie. You couldn't find anything else. You couldn't get... I don't know, Coolio to like write a rap song about Batman or Alfred? How come Alfred never gets any love? I want a rap song about Alfred. But yeah, a music a music video and a song about about Alfred where like Michael Gov is in the video. Oh my god, just take me away. Yeah, I would totally amazing. Yeah. Or like maybe he's got like some amazing talents as a hip hop artist that we didn't know about. Like Christopher Lee recording a heavy metal album. Like we never gave him a chance. Yeah, no, the world may never know. But no, this Michael Hutchins song, it, I, I'm not a huge like Iggy Pop fan, but like I recognized the song kind of immediately. And I was like, wait a minute. This is, first of all, this is not right. And then second of all, like Michael Hutchins, uh, what, 
It's terrible. I know. It's just, and The Passenger is a great song, and it can be covered well. Uh, Susie and the Banshees covered it, and it was amazing, because everything they do is amazing, including their song Face to Face, which was the theme for Batman Returns. Yes. Which we should get to at some point, but I'm not entirely sure how. Yeah, because I don't think... It's not like that that album had multiple songs. No. We'll, We'll slide it into the other Batman. Tack it on. Sure. Like bad dance. Okay. okay. But um, yeah, this one is just offensive. It, not a fan. No, I hated it. But why don't you talk about Bad Days by the Flaming Lips, which I feel like now we should actually have tacked that onto the Riddler piece, but we can switch stuff around. You're sort of stuck where you in your dreams you can buy expensive cars or live on Mars and have it your way um so yeah bad days is interesting because i've always liked the song from this album and you would think that you know having enjoyed this song i would have gone on to uh, explore the entire discography of the Flaming Lips, and I definitely did not do that. Nope. This is Same the only this is the only Flaming Lips song I know, and I'm perfectly happy with that being the case because it's kind of it's kind of upbeat and a little bit uh, a little joyful in in its like sadistic glee of like singing about killing your boss in your dreams, and it's I don't know it's a ni- it's a nice song to end a otherwise downbeat album. Um, in the film, it shows up when after the Riddler has killed his his supervisor, Ed Bailey Jr. plays his supervisor. Uncredited. Uncredited, yeah. Back to work, Edward. Uh, Fred Stickley is his name. <laughs> uh, he kills him off, and then they they have the police investigation, and then later that night he goes home to an apartment above a laundromat, and then the song plays, and it's like the sad song of what should be like. This should be the song of like a hero going home for like our main character going home for the first time. And instead it's a song for the Riddler. And it kind of underlines the fact that like this movie really is the Jim Carrey show because like nobody else in the film gets like a song that plays over like a big scene the way he does here. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great song. And it belongs on the clerk soundtrack to be perfectly frank. Yeah. Um, this song actually, fits i think best because it talks about like you know dreaming of killing your boss and and it's the sense that you uh in dreams you get to do what you want and stay in bed and i mean edward nigma is such a sad little loser and Mm -hmm. so this is really it's kind of his theme and it it works in a way that we're not given with any other uh any other characters. Yeah. And, uh, which I think is really, it does, it highlights, yeah, like you said, it highlights the fact that it's the, uh, the Jim Carrey show. I mean, he, he gets an on-screen, uh, uh, theme song and an off-screen theme song, you know? It's yeah. kind of, it's not fair. It's really yeah. not fair. Poor Tommy Lee Jones. Um, I actually, I forgot, I didn't realize this was the Flaming Lips. Um, although I should have. Fun fact, the Flaming Lips hail from my hometown of Oklahoma City. Really? And they formed the year I was born. 
and they are one of only about five or so good things to come out of Oklahoma, including, so it's me, the Flaming Lips, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Ron Howard, and Dr. Pepper Ices from 7-Eleven. That's it. That's, that's a, all we got to a, offer. You're in good company. Yeah. Um, and we have a lot of really, really terrible things to offer. Like, we're, I don't think we let gay couples adopt, and we're, we're pretty shitty. That's why I moved to upstate New York, but... Um, we got well, Dr. Pepper Ices and the Flaming Lips. So. It's like you said, they're all yeah. from Oklahoma, not in Oklahoma. Yeah, exactly. We all left. But um, uh, this is not my favorite Flaming Lips soundtrack song. That would be the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song, which is used in the Brother Solomon, which I love. I don't know that one. It has Will Arnett. Um, it was one of the last movies, I think like the last year that Roger Ebert was alive. He hated it. It's actually quite good. Um, oh, I meant the song, but okay. Oh, <laughs> I don't the, song the song is great. It's the place of, uh, over the opening credits. It's, it's oh, okay. pretty good, right. but it's it's almost the flip side of this. Um, well, I mean, from my understanding of the Flaming Lips, this this song really is not like indicative of what they do now. Yeah, and it's weird because like because I I felt the same way about hearing the Yeah 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 song. I was like, I should listen to these guys. I'm like, this is not what they sound like. <laughs> so never mind. So that, so that's what a, a a corporate pop soundtrack is supposed to do is like turn you on to new music and this it, you're in for a rude awakening apparently and this we talked about this last time with with clerks uh with alice and chains that yeah. it's not what they sound like i guess as far as the uh the flaming lips go like if you're going into this for more like kind of jangly rock pop that's kind of upbeat and also slightly sadistic like you might get that and you might not again i wish i knew more about the flaming lips to be frank they're not that great, honestly. Like, I feel like it's one of those bands that guys who are not that interesting really like and think it makes them interesting. I don't know. It's yeah. real hipster shit. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the impression that I got. Like, they're they're a band that I feel like I'm supposed to like so that I can keep my, man, my uh, cool dude card, but I was never issued a cool dude card, so I think I'm okay. You have a podcast that's coming off. You have a couple podcasts. Yeah, so I definitely don't have a cool dude card. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, and I guess the same can be said for I mean the, the the last song I want to talk about just real quick is the Sunny Day Real Estate song, which is just called Eight. Which I will be honest, I had not actually heard before until we started uh, researching for this podcast, and I listened to it today, and oh yeah, I kind of liked this song, and. I couldn't tell you a thing about it, but it was a, a real uh, college rock jam. And uh, again, as I understand, it's not really what they do. So, yeah, I, um, I, I know I listened to it a bunch of times. I remember nothing about it. It made no impression on me, which is not a good, not a good start. Yeah, it's just like your your uh, your stereotypical like college rock noise. So and, yeah, um, and again, it doesn't play in the film. So and I all- guess. And also, it doesn't fit on the soundtrack either. Like, yeah. Again, it should have been on the Clerk soundtrack. I feel like they might have raided the Clerk soundtrack for music to put on Batman Forever. <laughs> Which is again, they 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 were two years, they were one year apart. Yeah, nineteen ninety four, ninety five. So, um, and they could not be more different. Theoretically, I mean, there's a big difference between Clerks and Batman Forever, but the soundtracks. It really is. Sides, yeah. Sorry, it really is the difference between like. Uh, your sort of indie comedy, like your your comedy with indie cred versus your sort of corporate blockbuster summer movie. Mm-hmm. 
And like, so you, it's like the one movie is kind of like the death of grunge in a time capsule. And then the other is just um, what nonsensical pop music can we squeeze onto one album to sell to teenagers? Yeah. Well, it worked. It sold a bajillion copies. Yep. It sure so, did. Um, and traumatized all of us. Now, I feel like um, where we could fit this in, because we've, we've alluded a lot. Chase is the only character we haven't talked about. Uh, and, and I, remember, I, noticed, I remember this is the one you she's the one you really wanted to talk about before we got on the call tonight yes so, yeah let's get uh, into that. And part of it I, I only bring that up because we were going to talk about the women of clerks uh and we never did so but yeah we basically whiffed on that completely so let's do that now okay um <laughs> i in watching this you realize chase has no other purpose but to like lust after Batman and Bruce Wayne, she has she does nothing. No, she shows up in the film like already kind of obsessed with Batman and acting like she knows everything about him, and then he tries to like ma- bat splain to her about Batman, which is which like is... on one hand, like don't bat splain. On the other hand, like he's Batman, so she's kind of bat splaining him. Yeah, it's, it kind of goes back and forth a little bit. <laughs> like you're both insufferable. Um. Oh, I said in, a, in an extremely 90s sentiment, uh, this made me laugh when I was watching it, when she shines the bat signal, and he comes, and she's there in a slip or whatever, and he's like, <laughs> the bat signal is not a beeper. <laughs> it's like the most 90s. <laughs> the, I mean, the bat, the bat signal's not a beeper, but he must have a Oh, beeper. yeah. I think he's got a couple. But then, like, so she's so, I got it. But yeah, like her, her, her very second scene is her using the bat signal to summon him to try and sleep with. I know, and then like, but she knows everything about him, including his dating history, which I feel like is probably a right. She references yeah, Catwoman, which I feel is really crossing some lines because she's used because like she's got her files on Batman, and I feel like she's used probably her access to things like medical records to analyze him which i think is weird and creepy and and she's also probably like read up on everything vicky vale ever wrote about batman so she's like definitely done her i know and it's like that's as uh, someone who knows a lot about say walton goggins i still wouldn't like i don't know i feel like we'd want to go on a couple dates first before I tried to sleep with him. I don't think I would use like my Goggins signal in the sky or my Twitter account. Um, but no, like, at, like on one hand, I respect her thirst because I'm like, girl, get it. Get it? You, it's the 90s, you're a liberated woman, you get that bad dick. On the other hand, I'm like, girl, fucking chill. On the other hand, slow your roll and like, yeah, chill. Yeah, because it's like, you know, I I saw Ewan McGregor, who was up for the role of Robin, incidentally, um, mm-hmm. in Guys and Dolls. I was like in his presence for two hours, and I didn't like take my top off. So like, <laughs> Chase, girl, if I can do that, you can, can fucking keep your panties on in front of Commissioner Gordon and everybody. Just chill. Relax slow down so she's just she's too thirsty and it's kind of 
especially coming off of Batman Returns and what a great character Catwoman was, to just have this, I guess, what passes as liberated, but this completely characterless blow-up doll. You're trying to get under my cape, Doctor? <laughs> a girl can't live by psychosis alone. Like, yeah, she she's written as liberated, but she comes off as just easy. And not even that. Just, like, there's no character except this is the lady who wants to sleep with Batman. Like, like she's a psychiatrist, and they try and give her sort of a motive for even wanting to be with Bruce Wayne. And that, that kind of sort of works a little bit, and they try. But then when he puts on the Batman costume, she's just like, take me I now. know. It's, I don't know. I, don't get, I mean, I get those lips, but he does look <laughs> good in that cowl. Actually, there's... There's a, a scene in the movie where uh, Bruce Wayne goes to her office because the Riddler's been sending him uh, riddles, and he's like, well, what's all this about? And then he sees an inkblot test on the wall, and he's like, you got a thing for bats? And she says, oh, that's an inkblot test, and you see what you want to see. Do you have a thing for bats? And then it cuts to the test, and like, no, it's clearly a bat. Yeah. So she probably, <laughs> she's probably already been obsessed with him for quite it's, a while. Honestly, it's probably like a print of her hoo-ha. Uh, like... Uh, it's just the kind. Now of... you made me think about that. Sorry, man. <laughs> yeah, she's she's uh, a hoe. No, I'm no, because I'm thinking about the process of like, like, how do you place the ink? How do you get ready? How do you position? I don't know. I don't want to know how you do this kind of work. <laughs> yeah, well. Thanks a thanks a You're lot. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as we finish up, uh, do you consider this a successful soundtrack? Um. I am 50-50 on this soundtrack. I feel like half of the songs are like a pretty good encapsulation of what the movie's kind of trying to be about. And the other half are just complete studio filler. Like there's a gaping hole in the middle of the soundtrack. And then the bookends are like fairly appropriate. I actually, I think this, for all the filler that's on there, I think this works. Um, because I think it's really? got, I mean, you had six radio hits. Um, of various degrees of good, but um, right. I think you also um, you had some stuff that could be later discovered, and so you you were able to go back to it. So yeah. like you get the, the early Flaming Lips song, you've got uh, I guess an interesting Offspring cover. Whether or not you think it's a good cover is up. To but debate. then you could be like, you know, um, what? actually, I'm gonna go listen to the original. So you got other yeah, right, work. right, yeah, yeah. So. And I guess the same goes for the, the, the Michael Hutchins yeah. song or, uh, yeah, the Massive Attack song, yeah. <laughs> um, which itself is, is is okay. It's just kind of background noise. But then you've got, like, like two uh, arguably monster hits, like, probably one of the best songs ever recorded, I would venture to say. Oh, let's not go that far. Kiss from a Rose no. is pretty fucking Kiss from good. a Rose is very 90s. It, I, I think it holds up as a time capsule of the 90s. I don't think it's that good of a song. I think it's just, it's like the encapsulation of a sixth grade dance. It smells like Love's Baby Soft and dresses from Delia's. But I don't think it's that great of a song. I'm going to fight you on this. I mean, lyrically, we can we can argue over that. But I think musically, it holds up. But that's, you know, maybe that's... Okay, it holds up, but holds up and the best song of the 90s are two different things. Well, I'm sure as we continue on with this podcast, we will discover other "quote unquote" best songs of the '90s. The best song of the uh, '90s is "Flagpole Sitter" by uh, Harvey Danger, and I will hear nothing else. Case dismissed. What year did that come out, by the way? I believe it was 1999. I'm gonna look that up. 
Okay. Because the fact that PJ Harvey is on this album and, and Harvey Danger is not seems like an oversight to me. And I think it's because Harvey Danger didn't yet exist. No, Harvey, that song came out in 1997. Okay, so it's a little too early for that. Yes. All right. So we were stuck with PJ Harvey instead, which, eh, okay. Yes, but I think also it's kind of fun as I'm listening to this, seeing where we'll eventually see some overlap. Um, we're going to see PJ Harvey again when we yes. do Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Uh, we're going to see another The Damned cover uh, mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. Tommy Boy soundtrack. And so, you're, and we're going to see Massive Attack on every other soundtrack we do from here on out. Yeah, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll probably encounter Method Man and The Offspring and U2 again at some point as well. Less U2, I think. Um, but... Um, also Brandy, you know, the, Space Jam 2 is apparently coming out soon, so we might have to talk about Space Jam. We're going to definitely have to talk about Space Jam. But there's it, it's neat because they, they definitely go to certain wells. And I think with Warner Brothers, it was all people who are under Warner Brothers music contracts. Yeah, yeah. So, um... But that's another constraint that you're under when you're when you're building your soundtrack is you, you're kind of stuck with the artists that you have, mm-hmm. unless you're willing to shell out extra money for, you know, some other studios hit. Mm-hmm. So but. that's kind of that's a consideration as well. If, if, if you're kind of studying the construction of these soundtracks and you go like, well, there's, you know, this this big chunk here is kind of nonsense. What is it? Well, it's just stuff we had in the catalog that we had to get rid of. Yeah. And we thought we could, you know, make some money off it if um you know, if the it wasn't particularly selling well or... Like, you know, this would have been a really great, like, 10-track soundtrack if we had just cut, like, Mazzy Star or Eddie Reader or The Devlins or even, you know, Sunny Day Real Estate. Like, ha- like four or five of these songs could have been lost and nothing would have been Well, or missed. intersperse them with uh, some of the movie score. Or, yeah, or, you know what, put them in the fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> So I think that's where this soundtrack fails. Um, I think it it has a lot of good stuff on it. I think the Nick mm-hmm. Cave song is probably the standout. Oh, I, I mean, a, I love Hold Me Through. We didn't we didn't talk about it a lot, but that is a really good song. Yeah, because well, again, it's not the movie. Um, and it wasn't one of the. It was in a sense filler, but there's yeah. no reason it should be because it's probably song wise the best on the album, and it's kind of buried there. It's. Uh, you know, it, it's lost among U2 and Seal and Mazzy Star. It's one of it's it's one of those hidden gems that we, we talk about. Like you don't expect it to be there, but you're so glad that it is. Yeah, you're just like, holy shit! And especially like you're 13, you've never, you know, you you don't know who Nick Cave is. It's the 90s, and so to hear that, I think it would be really neat. Um, I'm kind of sorry that I didn't, you know, didn't notice it in, uh, in 1995. Right. I would have been much cooler if I had. <laughs> so, I felt like being a sixth grader, I would be into Nick Cave. Seems like that's my jam. So, all right. Any other thoughts? Uh, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue on saying that uh, this is this is sort of a formative soundtrack for me and a formative movie and a cultural experience. And I think if this if bat if batman forever is anything it's a cultural experience because yes. it really doesn't it doesn't hang together as a film it really doesn't hang together as a soundtrack but kind of taken as a whole like it's really a good picture of where we were in 1995 absolutely and i think it it i have a like a soft spot for it again because it did hit at a time where you started to feel like an adult 
And but like that weird version of like what a thirteen year old thinks an adult is like, ooh, I'm at a, it's eight o'clock and I'm at the movies. What's this like? I, uh, and you're like, ooh, there's it's not sex, but it's like it's almost sex. She's like under satin sheets, and so it's it. I, it's I like ha- Skinamax and Batman is in it. Yeah, <laughs> so I have it's it. It is. It's very weird and garish and colorful and and fun in a weird it's it's the last fun batman movie it was when we were still allowed to sort of enjoy superheroes and they hadn't been sort of widely taken over by angry virgins mm-hmm. or sort of i mean it was hammy it's just fun it was a batman that was accessible to everyone you could go with your friends. I don't give a shit about Batman. I couldn't care less about Batman. But I went and saw this movie. I'm I'm not like a, a regular comic book reader, so I, I'm not like deeply invested in sort of comic books as high art. Mm-hmm. But you know what? It, we've had so many Batman movies and so many of them are taken so seriously now that like I, I still appreciate one that's strange and kind of a little bit fucked up and a little goofy. If a guy and... dresses up like a bat, how are we supposed to take that seriously? Like, how can we not take that as anything but neon and wrought iron and homoeroticism? Like, how can we not? Yeah, I mean, what more do you want out of a film that has its flying rodent man versus question mark man? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, and... I mean, if the, if there's anything that doesn't hold up in this film, like we said, it's Jim Carrey. Right. I mean, Jim Carrey is... He's your so opinion 90s. on Jim Carrey, it, Yeah, your opinion on Jim Carrey varies over time, and he's definitely, you know, gotten better as an actor over time as well. But, like, in that sweet spot where he had just broken onto the scene, he's kind of insufferable. Yeah. And I think everybody in the film but him knows it. Yeah, although I will say this. I will go to bat for Ace Ventura. You know, I'll go to bat for uh, Dumb and Dumber. So there you go. Okay. Um, and that, actually, hey, the Ace Ventura soundtrack is great. Dumb and Dumber too, actually. Yeah. So um, let's put those on the list. Yeah, we actually uh, we should do a special breakout. Uh, Libby apologizes to Jim Carrey, um, because the whole soundtrack of um, uh, Me, Myself, and Irene is Steely Dan covers. Really? Yes, it is. That is interesting yes and it's ben folds does barrytown um and i kind of can't wait to do that show with you because i i i have this image in my head of how you're going to be for the whole hour and <laughs> insufferable i think <laughs> yes and i i kind of can't wait <laughs> yeah it's um it's amazing uh i've actually i've only heard like some of them but um and you know, I've been trying to watch the, my way my way through the Fairly Brothers movies this summer, and I I've come up against the wall, and the wall's name is my, me, myself, and I. Which is weird because I actually like that one a lot. Yeah, um, I haven't seen that since it came out. So I remember liking but, it, but um, I'm looking at it right now. Um, Smash Mouth does do it again. Um, okay. Any major dude will tell you is that by Wilco. Ivy does only a fool would say that. I lied. We have to cut this out. Hootie and the Blowfish are on the Me, Myself, and Irene soundtrack. Um, Fuck! <laughs> I know, it's like our best joke. Um, Brian Setzer Orchestra does Bodhisattva. The Push Stars, who I love and saw in concert, do Bad Sneakers. Marvelous 3 does Reelin' in a Year as Ben Folds 5 does Barrytown. And Billy Goodrum does uh, Razor Boy. 
god okay yeah that's a stacked soundtrack yeah and then i mean that's not counting third eye Bly is on there the foo fighters ecstasy the offspring <laughs> all right um tom wolf pete yorn um all all doing steely dan covers no only about eight of them are steely dan covers Okay. So. Well, still, that feels like a very deliberate choice. Like, like more thought was put into that soundtrack than this one. Yes. So, um, and the the Fairly Brothers are great. They actually, I take that back. Uh, Stuck on You is my favorite Fairly Brothers movie. I like that one a lot too. Yeah, I think that's that a one really gets a bad rap. Yeah, and it's a really sweet film, and that they used, you know, they went out of their way to use some of the Down syndrome. Um, you know, not as a joke. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like they, they do that in a, in a lot of their films, and I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think they're like really actually their soundtracks are are we should might want to do um focus on them because um you know Jonathan Richmond does the soundtrack to There's Something About Mary like they they mm-hmm. these guys mm-hmm. have a real real love for music so um. I think... And I, I, I'm I'm thinking of the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack, and there's like three or four like solid covers on that album too. Yeah. So um, we should just do like a whole month dedicated to the Fairley Brothers. Yes, um, I, I'm good with that because I do. I love, just I like them. <laughs> <laughs> All the way up to like yeah, well, I don't know. The only one, Shallow Hal, is probably the one where I'm like, fuck you guys. Eh, yeah, that's a little weak. Uh, no, that's a lot weak. Yeah, but um, but even Dumb and Dumber, I thought was funny. Um, like K- Kingpin is is not great, but it's a, it's very funny. Yeah. Um, um, there's something about Mary I thought was good. Um, Fever Pitch was all right. I think that's kind of where I stopped watching. We got, but like we got like four like really good ones right there in a row. So I think yeah. we're good. I think we're good. Um, all right. All right. Well, let's should we, <laughs> should we wrap this bad bitch up? No. Yeah. Let's let let's uh let's wrap this episode up. Ship it off to Arkham, and uh, we'll come back next week for another. Another delightful uh, uh, podcast. And Libby, uh, next time on the show, what are we talking about? Next time, we will dive into the Back to the Future soundtrack. We will do all three movies, one amazing podcast. Sounds great. Uh, So, uh, for OST Party, I am Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. Buy the ticket. Take the ride. I'm gonna get messed up and I got shit.